0: I'm Christopher Leiden with an open-source podcast at home with Stephen Kinzer, career sleuth who's uncovered secret U.S. operations in books like Overthrow and All the Shah's Men. In a new book that you won't put down, Poisoner in Chief, Steve Kinzer is introducing the one-time government scientist named Sidney Gottlieb and the notorious mind-control CIA program that he led, MKUltra. Steve Kinzer, this book of yours, Poisoner in Chief, induces a feeling, what is it, post-LSD trip or something. We've been to a completely different zone that we know is there, but we can't believe. You're introducing us to the man who brought LSD into this world, who may have been responsible for the early death, he and his henchmen, of Billie Holiday, the man who may have changed the course of Boston history, putting Whitey Bulger on a two-year LSD regimen that would shake anybody's brain. There are suggestions of Hitler's Dr. Mengele in this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, James Bond, real life, Dr. Strangelove. Introduce this character.
1: Chris, this is my 10th book, and I'm always looking for what happens behind the facade of the politics and diplomacy that we see. I've discovered a lot of things that are surprising, and maybe they've shocked other people, but this is the first time I've been shocked by something that I discovered in writing a book. I'm still getting over my shock from the process of learning who this Sidney Gottlieb was. I now conclude that he was the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century, unless there was somebody else who was conducting extreme and sometimes lethal experiments on three continents and had a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. So it's not just a story about drugs and an attempt to create a mind-control system that the CIA could use, to influence Americans and create agents around the world. But it's also a
0: story about how far secret agencies can go and did go. This is the man who, if we had managed to poison Fidel Castro, would have had the potion. The guy who had the suicide pill for James Powers if he got shot down over the Soviet Union. The man who, for sure, mixed the poisons that would have killed Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. I mean, detail some of the other things he did. So Sidney Gottlieb was brought into the CIA in
1: 1951 after Alan Dulles, the covert actions director who would soon become CIA director, and other people in the early CIA went into a panic. They thought that the communists had developed some kind of a drug or a potion or a technique to control people's minds. And they thought that, therefore... It was essential that the United States develop an intense program to find that same magic key. Now, it turned out not to be true that the Soviets had discovered the key to mind control. And in fact, Sidney Gottlieb, after 10 years of trying, concluded that there is no such key.
0: But how silly if I'm asked to, to suppose that there was one trick of controlling people's minds and, and those guys are doing it so we got it. it. The mentality that wants to do it is the question. I asked myself, what made them think
1: this was possible? Why did they believe that you could give someone a pill and make him do something that otherwise he would never do, or hypnotize him to carry out some bizarre act? I think, in large part, it was the conditioning they got from fiction from a lot of books, a lot of movies that they watched as they were growing up and as adults. And those were hugely popular. Uh, You learned about Svengali and other monsters who could be created uh, by evil scientists. And in their own mind, they transferred this into something that could be made real. Then, decades later, in our own age, we see the opposite happening, and that is a whole genre of movies and video games and TV shows that actually use mind control and other tropes from MKUltra. So, a program that wound up actually being nurtured by fantasy in the end created a whole new genre of fantasy. Now,
0: this is so human. There's some childlike fantasy that we could live forever. Hey, what if we could live forever? And there are scientists in laboratories not far from here, who are working on exactly that. Can we tweak your your genome somehow, that you would be blonde and blue-eyed, or uh, a great tennis player, or live to be 140? Godley was doing
1: something comparable. So his assignment was, find the key to mind control so we can conquer the world and uh, be masters forever. That was the ridiculously large assignment he was given. And he decided with his scientist's mind—he was the chief chemist of the CIA—that before you could figure out how to implant a new mind into someone's brain, you first had to find a way to blow out the mind that was in there, to blast it away. And he spent 10 years testing various drugs, electroshock, hypnosis, other techniques of sensory deprivation, in order to find ways to destroy human minds. In the end, he concluded that, yes, it is possible to destroy human minds. And some of the experiments that he did were so extreme they would destroy anybody's mind. But he figured out also that it's not possible to get to stage two. After you've destroyed their mind, you cannot put a new one in to replace it. Wow. This is what they were doing in Atlanta at the federal penitentiary, presumably. So Gottlieb carried out his most extreme experiments in two different areas— uh, Some were inside the United States. They were often using prison inmates as the victims. At one point, there was an experiment in a prison in Kentucky in which seven African American inmates were isolated and given what were called double, triple, and quadruple doses of LSD every day for seventy seven days. Mm. Gottlieb wanted to see if there was a dose so high it could destroy a person's mind. And and guess what? Of course, it did. It was big enough. This is the same series of experiments carried out in Atlanta in the federal penitentiary there in which one of the subjects was Whitey Bulger, who for over a year was given LSD every day and told that he was participating in an experiment aimed at finding a cure for schizophrenia. He didn't know the CIA was behind this, nor did anybody else who Gottlieb was negotiating. Uh, did eventually negotiate. Much later, many of the victims came to understand what had happened to them. So in addition to these experiments conducted in prisons in the United States, there were even more grotesque ones carried out in East Asia and in Europe. So I went over to Germany while researching this book and found what I think might be the first CIA secret prison. It's in what used to be a villa at the end of a country lane in a a town outside of Frankfurt. And the guy that owns it now took me down into the basement where he has storage rooms, and he said these were the cells where CIA chemists and doctors carried out experiments that were continuations of what the Nazis had been doing in the concentration camps. And in fact, Nazi doctors were participating in designing the kinds of drug combinations and other experiments that might be used to destroy someone's mind. And this guy, the owner of the villa, said to me, "Uh, people in the neighborhood all know this happened. And they've told me that bodies of people who were killed during these experiments, who were experimented to death, were buried in forests in places that are now covered over with apartment blocks and shopping malls. So that was the most extreme kind of experiment that Gottlieb was carrying out on what they called expendables. So people they thought might be enemy agents or people they figured had no uh, connection to anybody so their disappearance wouldn't affect anyone. These were the 10 years of experiments that Gottlieb was using Uh, particularly focused on LSD, but with many other drugs as well, aimed at getting him to the point where he could create for the CIA
0: a way to control people's minds. Steve, we knew a little bit about this guy from Wormwood, the movie that Errol Morris made about a CIA agent whose drink was laced, and then he was pushed out a high window opposite Penn Station in New York. Your boy Sidney Gottlieb was part of that LSD trick, but we get to know so much more, in a way, in your book. I'm wondering, among other things, he was a secret, secret, secret agent. The CIA thought it had disappeared him entirely out of the record. You'd never find a trace of him. How did you find what you know? It's a remarkable effort to try to write the biography
1: of a person who, in effect, wasn't there. Sidney Gottlieb lived in total anonymity. He was invisible. Even in the CIA, very few people uh, knew who he was or anything about what he really did, although there were rumors that he was involved with LSD. Nobody knew the depths that he had gone to. I even coincidentally ran into a guy who was a retired former director of the CIA, and I said to him, I'm writing the biography of Sidney Gottlieb. And he looked at me blankly and said, I never heard of him. And and I believe him. This was Helms? No, this was one of Helms' successors. Helms was actually Gottlieb's number one enabler and boss. And it's amazing to me that Gottlieb was able to function with so little supervision. I think the reason was that people like Helms and Dulles knew that he must be doing some awful, terrible things. And they didn't want to know about them. This is obedience to a culture that's not only strong in the CIA, but probably in all secret services. Ignorance is a cherished asset. You don't want to know too Mm. much. And so Gottlieb was given an amazing amount of power. When he left the CIA, he and Helms agreed that they should destroy all records of MKUltra, this mind control project, and Gottlieb actually drove out to the CIA Record Center in Virginia to oversee the destruction of seven crates of documents. The archivist out there wrote in his memo that the material was destroyed, quote, over my stated objections. Hmm. That disappeared an entire archive. Now, later on, it was discovered that there was another trove of expense account reports, of projects related to MK Ultra that were kept in another depot. Bit by bit stories about what MK Ultra had been began to drip out. So in nineteen seventy five the church committee called Sidney Gottlieb, then retired, back to Washington for testimony. They allowed him to testify in secret under a pseudonym. And then they brought him back again two years later in uh, 1977. But they didn't know anything about what he had really done. They didn't know enough to ask him
0: the right questions. Well, I wonder, he didn't just think up the idea of, hey, what if we poisoned Patrice Lumumba or killed Fidel Castro You're absolutely
1: right. So the wild extremes of MK-Ultra came out of Gottlieb's own mind. He was just told, do whatever you need to do to find the key to mind control. Then, towards the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, Gottlieb assumed another role. So he, as the CIA's chief chemist, knew more about poison than anybody in the United States, probably more than anyone in the world. What did he know about it, for example? He had assembled freezers full of some of the world's most deadly toxins. Some were toxins that would cause specific diseases like tuberculosis or anthrax. But he also had biotoxins that he had extracted from various kinds of animals. His favorite biotoxin was something called saxitoxin, which he used in suicide pills. And this is extracted painstakingly from thousands of Alaskan butter clams. (laughs) And the potency of what he distilled of this saxitoxin was so great that a single gram would kill... 5,000 people, and that's why he used that particular toxin to make the suicide pin that was given to the pilots of the U-2 spy plane during the 1960s. So, when Eisenhower decided in May of 1960 that Castro should be, as he put it, sawed off, the CIA then immediately thought, as we all know from the history now, let's approach the mafia, let's get them to gun him down and a CIA emissary went to visit two famous gangsters in Las Vegas, and they told him, essentially, you've been watching too many movies. That's not the way to kill someone. You don't shoot him down in the street. Nobody would ever get away. You must have somebody at the CIA that makes poison. We have people that could get to Castro. Can you do that? Now, those gangsters didn't know that there was anyone named Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody did. But they were right to think that the CIA must have a poisoner-in-chief. So Gottlieb got the assignment to make the poisons to kill Castro. He made a box of 50 cigars, each tainted with botulinum poison, so strong that you wouldn't even have to smoke it. You would just have to put your lips on it and you would die. They couldn't get that box of cigars to Castro. So then Gottlieb (laughs) produced a series of pills that were to be dropped into some kind of a tea or bouillon that Castro would drink. They couldn't deliver those pills either. Gottlieb made a poison wetsuit that was coated with a fungus inside that would kill Castro when he put it on. As we all know, Castro survived all of these. But then later that same summer, in 1960, Eisenhower ordered another assassination, which was that of Patrice Lumumba, the prime minister of the Congo. Sidney Gottlieb created a poison kit specifically to be used for killing Patrice Lumumba. It contained a vial of liquid botulinum, a syringe with a hyper-thin needle, and several other accoutrements. He packed this kit together, and he hand-carried it to the Congo, where he delivered it to the local CIA station chief. So that certainly makes him the only person ever to have carried U.S. government manufactured poison to a foreign country with the assignment of using it to
0: kill the leader of that country. Has it occurred to you why Ian Fleming and Sidney Gottlieb have never been seen together? This is literary fancy. This is wacko.
1: It really goes beyond imagination, and it makes you wonder how much else is out there. So Sidney Gottlieb was this visionary chemist. He wasn't a sadist, but he might as well have been, uh, considering what he did. He definitely lost track of any moral calculation or any sense that there's a certain amount of evil that you can do in a righteous cause that ultimately outweighs the righteousness. But In addition to all of that, besides having this very cruel approach to research, he also, in his private life, was an amazingly different person. He was spiritual. He was compassionate. He meditated. He studied Buddhism. He had a quote from the Quran on the wall. He grew his own vegetables. He lived in an eco-cabin with no running water. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. So you really have this Jekyll and Hyde character who, during the day, is supervising the most extreme experiments ever carried out by the U.S. government. And at night, being the loving father and eco-man who actually was kind of a proto-hippie.
0: It's amazing, Steve, especially that you found it out. I count on you to warn us about crazy war with Iran or watch what's going on in Latin America... How did you get onto the trail of this thing? Actually, it started
1: when I was working on a book about John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State in the 50s, and his brother. Wonderful book, too. The Brothers. In that book, I came across the story that a CIA guy working for Alan Dulles had carried poison to the Congo. That started me thinking, who was that guy? And I then discovered that this was the person who made poisons to kill various foreign leaders. The more I researched him, the more I realized that actually that was just a small piece of what he did. For those murder plots, he was essentially just the pharmacist compounding the goodies. The MKUltra project was far more bizarre. And then I went on to discover that he was the person who brought LSD to the United States. We thought it was Timothy Leary. But Timothy Leary must have gotten the idea from somewhere. Where did it come from? So Tim Leary first got interested in psychedelic drugs when he read an article in Life magazine in 1957 about a couple of Americans who had gone to Mexico and found the so-called magic mushroom that has psychedelic properties. Tim Leary was fascinated by that article. He then went to Mexico He found the magic mushroom and tried it himself. He loved the experience so much that he then went on to a lifetime of being the big LSD guru that we all know about. But what Tim Leary did not know and could not have known is that the expedition to Mexico that was the subject of that article in Life magazine was paid for by Sidney Gottlieb, Mm. by MKUltra, by the CIA. And one of the Americans who was on the expedition was working for the CIA. So Tim Leary in his later life definitely came to realize and accept that he had been turned on by the CIA. And he wasn't the only one. So I mentioned all these horrifically coercive experiments with LSD and other drugs that Gottlieb was carrying out. But there was another side of his LSD experimentation. In 1953, Gottlieb persuaded the CIA to spend $240,000 to buy the entire world supply of LSD Mm. from the chemists in uh, Switzerland who had manufactured it. He then set up a couple of bogus foundations, which notified hospitals and clinics around the country that uh, we're now interested in paying you and providing LSD so you can uh, carry out experiments on volunteers— And just write down what their reactions are. Hmm. So almost overnight, a new market grew up for research into this new drug, since there was money to be made and the drugs were being provided free of charge. Who were among the very first people to sign up to take the LSD that Sidney Gottlieb had bought from the Sandoz factory in Switzerland. Well, one of them was Ken Kesey, who went on to write uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and became a high priest of LSD. Another one was Allen Ginsberg, the poet who listened to uh, Wagner while taking his first LSD at Stanford University in an experiment sponsored by Gottlieb and the CIA. The same thing happened with the Grateful Dead. They got their LSD from Gottlieb. Robert Hunter, the uh, lyricist of The Grateful Dead, got his first LSD uh, also at Stanford in the same experiment that uh, Allen Ginsberg participated in. These are the guys that then set off the LSD revolution. So Gottlieb can really be seen as the first acid visionary. He is the one who is the unwitting godfather of the LSD counterculture. And of course, the irony of it is that the drug that Gottlieb hoped would give the CIA the ability to control people's minds wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stood for.
0: Fascinating to me, Steve, that this comes out of your work on Alan Dulles and the the brothers Dulles. I read that book with great interest. I'm sure we talked about it. To me, the moral was here was a guy who rose to the top of the secret state oversaw the Bay of Pigs disaster, was fired by John F. Kennedy for that reason. Kennedy famously said, in the parliamentary system, I would have to go. No, in the presidential system, you have to go, Mr. Dulles. Dulles reappears as the a member of the Warren Commission who dominated what everybody now feels was a sort of cover-up of the Kennedy assassination and survives. All of this brings halfway into the light this unbelievable and uninspected power of, dare we say, the deep state, the secret government, and leaves entirely open the suspicion that it was the deep state that killed John Kennedy. How do we cope with this as citizens, as human beings, as grown-ups who want to believe evidence and don't want to drive ourselves crazy with, with paranoia? I mean, what's to be done here? So
1: Alan Dulles was doing things that we don't know about some of which we later learn, some of which I'm sure we will never learn, but at least he was a public figure. The guy that I write about, Sidney Godlieb was totally unknown. So that, in a way, is even scarier. How could a person with this much power have functioned for so
0: long so freely without anybody even knowing that he existed? (laughs) But I want to distinguish something here. You say he's the most important unknown person maybe in our in our modern history but what's really unknown is who was who was running him who was the puppeteer behind this unknown puppet
1: well I feel that Gottlieb in a way was a an instrument of history and he's a reflection of all of us I think that Alan Dulles and uh, Richard Helms and even Dwight Eisenhower had a general idea of what he was doing and uh, they didn't want to know anymore So they let him run wild. And I think one of the lessons for today
0: is... Well, they let him go wild in the laboratory, but they didn't let him out of the cage until they wanted to. Right? There's no doubt that Gottlieb was working within what he
1: believed, and I think correctly, was a framework in which his work was tolerated and encouraged. For me, the lesson is that you can't get carried away with a belief that we are in a particular moment now so drastic that anything is justified. I think that's what we heard then, and it's what we're hearing again now.
0: But well, so, we heard it from Dick Cheney in the, on the matter of torture.
1: Absolutely. I think that is the great danger. So the covert sphere plays such an important role in our lives. And Americans are so aware of this that I think that is what has created this sense that there must be much more going on behind the scenes than we know. I give you one little example in my book. So we talked briefly about Frank Olson, the CIA chemist who mysteriously went out a window after threatening to quit the CIA and reveal the secrets of MKUltra. In the days before the episode, before he died, he was continually with a little group of the CIA chemists with whom he worked. At one point, they stopped for a lunch at the hot shops in Bethesda, Maryland. And Frank Olson refused to eat. He said that he was afraid the CIA was poisoning his food. Uh. Now, under normal circumstances, you can file away the belief the CIA is poisoning my food... Along with the one that says that aliens are communicating through my dental fillings. But Frank Olson not only knew that the CIA poisoned people's foods, he himself had made the poisons. <laughs> oh so this makes you think how far do you have to go before you begin
0: believing even these crazy theories? It's wild. Not least the sort of the cultural spin offs. Gottlieb worked with a guy named George Hunter White, who was obsessed by narcotics and drugs in the jazz world and it was he in retrospect who may have hounded Billie Holiday who had a pretty innocent habit and an incredibly healthy soul into her early death. George Hunter White stands out in this
1: bizarre cast of M.K. Ultra characters. You have all these gentleman torturers and Nazi doctors and electroshockers. But George Hunter White was really an extremely bizarre figure. So he was a federal narcotics agent. Uh, he was also a heavy narcotics user himself and a heavy alcoholic. Uh, he was into all kinds of bizarre sexual kinks as well. And he was hired by Sidney Gottlieb to run a crazy operation in New York where people were lured into an apartment in Greenwich Village where they would be doped with LSD and other drugs. Later, he moved to San Francisco and ran a bordello for Gottlieb in what was called Operation Midnight Climax. (laughs) And this is a place to which prostitutes would lure men so that their drinks could then be spiked and the uh, possible effects of sex mixed with drugs could be observed and recorded. So George Hunter White also had his regular day job as a narcotics agent while he was overseeing these bizarre MKUltra projects. And you're right, he was part of the campaign against jazz musicians In New York... Thelonious
0: Monk, for example.
1: He was particularly irritated by Billie Holiday, who he said was always in big cars and fancy furs. And this irritated him. It must have made it seem like she was living above the station that George Hunter White thought she should be living in. Mm. So uh, he persecuted her in particular, and uh, you could argue that uh, that helped fuel her decline toward an early death.
0: You could argue, I think. We've heard before about Whitey Bulger being part of an LSD experiment in Atlanta penitentiary. I never took it quite seriously. He was a bad apple before he ever met the Sidney Gottlieb team. On the other hand, there's a very persuasive argument in your book that, uh, no, this almost two years on heavy doses of this stuff could have inflicted a terrific pain, for one thing, nightmares, mysterious fear of his own insanity, this kind of thing, but shaped his notorious career forever after. You quote uh, Anthony Cardinale, a defense lawyer, saying if that had been brought out at Whitey's trial, it would have got him off you know, instantly.
1: I wouldn't go quite that far, but it's certainly true that using LSD every day for a year and a half without being told what it was when you're 26 years old and in a jail cell has to have a deep effect on you. Whitey Bulger wrote about this later on. He said, I was in jail for committing a crime, but I feel like a greater crime was committed on me. So he was in jail for truck hijacking in the Atlanta penitentiary when he was drawn into this LSD web. For the rest of his life, he had hallucinations by his own account. He could never sleep. He had to, even in jail, he wanted to sleep with the light on. So to what degree might that have changed him? You can speculate, but I can tell you this. In the late 1970s, it slowly began to dawn on Whitey Bulger that this was not an experiment to find a cure for schizophrenia, that this was a CIA project that he had been tricked into participating in. And he was so furious that he told his gangster friends that he was going to go back and find this Dr. Pfeiffer who ran the experiments at the Atlanta Penitentiary and he was going to kill him. Now, Dr. Pfeiffer later died a natural death, so Whitey didn't get around to that one. But he definitely felt that this was a decisive episode in his life. And for me, it's interesting because we hardly have any accounts of people who were the victims of Sidney Gottlieb's experiments. Many of them never knew until their dying day that they had been such victims. Others may have died. So uh, Whitey's story is particularly interesting, not just for what it says about LSD, but for the window it gives you into the intensity of the experiments Mm. that Sidney Gottlieb was supervising.
0: Stand way back. What drove all of this? Is it kind of human madness and the availability of of science to to do crazy tricks? Was it the Cold War really? Was it politics? Was it what?
1: The Cold War mentality was the immediate cause. There were two episodes that suddenly electrified the CIA because the CIA wildly over-exaggerated and misinterpreted their meaning. and These were both happening right in the period at the very beginning of the Cold War. First was the trial in Hungary of the Roman Catholic prelate, Cardinal Mincenti. The CIA decided that since he obviously had not committed the crimes to which he had confessed and that he seemed kind of glazed and he spoke in a monotone, mm. this must mean that the, the communists had found a way to control his mind. Actually, as it turned out, he was broken by very normal means of isolation and beating and repetitive interrogation. But the CIA developed this idea. The communists have found a way to penetrate Who his mind. Who in the CIA? Particularly, I think it was Dulles and Helms. Those were the two figures who got MK Ultra moving. The second thing that happened was the behavior of some American prisoners of war who returned after the Korean War. A number of them, it turned out, had written statements praising communism or criticizing the United States in some ways, and some had actually confessed to war crimes, even dropping biological weapons, which the U.S. insisted it had never done. So... The CIA concluded these people must have been brainwashed. So this fantasy of brainwashing a seized their mind. word was invented for the case almost. The CIA had a propagandist who promoted this idea of brainwashing, and then the CIA fell for its own fantasy. So that was the immediate cause, the sense that uh, there was such a thing as brainwashing and the communists had discovered it. But what lies behind that? What would have made you believe that these kinds of things are real? I do think there's something in the human mind that makes it difficult for us to distinguish between fantasy and reality. Perhaps also the scientific age, the age of the Enlightenment, has made us mistakenly believe that anything you can imagine can be made true. And that actually was the belief behind this mind control project.
0: If it's in a movie, we can do it. You remember the scene in Manchurian Candidate where the Chinese doctor says, Raymond, you have not been brainwash, you've been brain dry cleaned. (laughs) All of that fed the fantasy of the
1: CIA. But that movie, The Manchurian Candidate, played a very interesting role because by the time it came out and brought the idea of brainwashing to a mass public, the CIA had already decided that brainwashing was a myth. So uh, fiction lagged behind what the CIA had discovered. And we actually have a quote from one of the Scientists who worked with Gottlieb on on this mind control project, in which he says that movie caused us a lot of problems because it made suddenly a lot of people believe and ask us about something that we had just figured out was a myth.
0: Describe Sidney Gottlieb in the aftermath. He thought he could disappear as they disappeared him. What happened?
1: Sidney Gottlieb was just as invisible when he left the CIA as he was when he came in more than 20 years earlier and as he had been for that entire period. He received a medal for Distinguished Service, uh, and he had to give the medal right back because you're not allowed to keep it, and the citation has never been declassified. That was fine with him. So after leaving, he was still a young guy in his mid-50s, he and his wife decided to do something that reflected their spiritual side. They sold their eco-cab, and they got on a tramp steamer, and they decided to travel and help people around the world. And they were living in a hospital in India that treated leprosy patients. When in 1975, uh, Gottlieb's idyll was uh, shattered by a message from Washington that told him, somebody here has figured out that you exist, and they want to talk to you, and that somebody is an investigator for the church committee. So Gottlieb had to come back and participate in two rounds of hearings, but they were held privately and uh, none of the senators in, were able to crack the heart of his mystery. No one even asked him the most basic questions like, did you ever conduct experiments in other countries? and Did anybody die under your experiments? Gottlieb then sank back into pretty much complete invisibility, but he seemed to be racked with guilt in his later years. One person said to me if he'd been Catholic, he would have moved into a monastery. He never spoke about MKUltra. But anybody who believes in divine judgment or karmic payback would have to be very disturbed to look back on a life like Sidney Gottlieb's. In 1999, Gottlieb died at the age of 80. Now, at that point, he was being pursued by the law. A case that's emerged from a, apparent drugging that he had participated in in the 1950s was about to come to trial. In addition, New York prosecutors were reviewing the so-called suicide of Frank Olson. All of this together led some of the people around Gottlieb to conclude that he may have committed suicide. So the cause of death was never revealed. But it's certain that uh, Gottlieb knew some very deep secrets and was committed enough to the CIA so that he did not ever want to be in a position where he'd have to reveal them in ways that would not only incriminate the agency, but he himself.
0: I can't thank you enough and admire you enough for this succession of extraordinary books. Nobody writes them the way you do. Thank you, Steve Kinzer. Thank you. Stephen Kinzer's new book is called Poisoner in Chief. Open Source is now a member of the collective Hub and Spoke. If you can, leave something in our tip jar over at patreon.com/radioopensource. I'm Christopher Leiden, and thanks for being part of the Open Source project.